2006, September 27th. Today is Lecture 6, Daily and Annual Motions, which will begin in just a moment. Now, yesterday and the day before, we've talked about the Earth as a static body. It's just sort of sitting there. And we've drawn the Earth as a sphere and talked about how big it is. And yesterday, we set up a system of coordinates on the surface of a sphere using angles. We introduced and talked about the latitude and longitude system on the Earth and then introduced the idea of the celestial sphere. The fact that as I walk outside and look at the sky at night, the sky looks like a hemispherical bowl inverted over me. But in fact, if I could look at it from the outside, I would get the illusion of the stars being painted on the surface of a transparent sphere just out of reach with the Earth at the center. And so using the Earth at the center of this immense celestial sphere, I can create a celestial equator by projecting the Earth's equator out, and I can create celestial north and south poles by simply projecting the Earth's rotation poles and getting them out there until they intersect. Okay, you get one today. Until they intersect on the north and south. And the worst part is it was a wrong number. So, now we have to take into account the third aspect of this, and that is the, the sky is not stationary. It's actually in constant motion. And today I want to now set the heavens into motion and talk about the daily and annual motions of the stars and, and objects in the sky. And this becomes a lead-in to the next few topics over the rest of the week and next week. What you're going to see, there's a common theme over the next few lectures. We're going to start with the simplest possible motions, and then we're going to start layering on additional levels of complexity until we finally end up with the most complex motions of all next Thursday, the motions of the planets. So this is part of a progression series. Not, it's standalone as a lecture by itself, but it's really the, the beginning of, of an entire exploration. The key ideas. We're going to talk, divide motions up into two basic groups that we see in the sky. The first of these are called the daily motions that reflect the fact that the Earth rotates around its axis once a day. And we'll talk about, for example, one of the consequences of that, a group of stars known as the circumpolar stars, stars that are always visible above the horizon. There's a second set of motions that occur more slowly. They play out over the course of a year, so we call them the annual motions. These motions in the sky are a reflection of the fact that the Earth is orbiting around the sun once a year. This is going to lead to a description of the ecliptic. That's the apparent path that the sun follows through the course of a year as seen against the background stars. Once I have these two sets of motions, I can now begin to talk about more complicated motions in the sky. Having defined the ecliptic, we're going to see two basic phenomena come together. The zodiacal constellations, the set of constellations that live against the ecliptic and that the sun appears to move through throughout the course of a year, and we'll introduce four special locations along the ecliptic, the solstices and the equinoxes. And we'll use those as a lead-in to talk about long time scale phenomena like the seasons in the next couple lectures. So today we're going to introduce the first of the motions in the heavens. Now my perspective in doing this is going to be from the modern way of viewing it. The Earth is rotating and the Earth is orbiting around the Sun. But the motions are the motions that you see, and you can, in fact, describe them from a purely geocentric point of view, where, like Aristotle and the Greeks, you can view the Earth as stationary at the center of a universe, and it is the universe itself that is turning around a fixed and stationary Earth. This is a complicated way of looking at it from our perspective, but actually it's the common sense view. And you can do it. The difference is 
is that in the geocentric view where the Earth is stationary, you view these motions as real motions. The stars really are rising and setting day to day. And the sun really is moving across the sky through the course of a year. Whereas we're going to explicitly use the word apparent motion, which means it only appears to be moving because it's an illusion caused by the fact that our point of view, the Earth, is both rotating around its axis and moving around the sun. And this compound motion of daily rotation and annual orbit is what gives the motions the character that we see. And so I'm going to use the sort of modern way of looking at it, but bear in mind that I can switch to a geocentric point of view without skipping a beat. The phenomena are the same. It's just how I choose to explain them that's different. And that explanation was a very compelling one for most of human history. Now, yesterday at the end of the lecture, I talked about how the fact that from a given point on the, on the Earth, you see only half the sky at any given instant. So we have our canonical observer sitting here, standing in the center of his little personal world. You see the horizon stretching out flat around you in all directions because the Earth is sufficiently large, you don't sense the curvature of the sphere locally. I can describe directions here, north, south, east, and west. In fact, these are, in fact, the orientation of this classroom. And I can define some special locations relative to my position. Having defined the four cardinal points along my horizon, I can talk about the straight up position, the zenith. And of course, there's straight down is the nadir. You can imagine that hemisphere being completed below the ground. But we don't usually think about it because I can't see anything down there because I see well, the ground. But we're riding at a particular location on the surface of the Earth. So this zenith is perpendicular to the ground. But where that ground perpendicular point points in space depends upon where I am upon the surface of the Earth. I happen to have a very convenient Earth globe here. And let's put this in my pocket for a second. And I have a convenient local observer, Marvin, here. If Marvin was standing at a middle latitude, his notion of straight up is at this angle of about 45 degrees from north. Because we go from the equator up to 45 degrees, his notion of straight up is now that way. Marvin's head's pointing up towards the ceiling. And as the Earth rotates around, his head always points 45 degrees from the celestial pole, which runs north and south this way. If Marvin was down on the equator, his notion of up and down is now perpendicular to the Earth's pole. And as the Earth rotates around, it stays perpendicular to the pole. That's why it's called the pole. And if Marvin was down here in South America, say down on the Straits of Magellan, his notion of up is now that way. And Marvin's head always points towards the stage some fraction of his latitude away from the South Pole. So I can, at any given location on the Earth, project onto my local sky the location of the celestial pole of my respective horizon and the celestial equator, the projection of the Earth's equator outwards. This, because we're standing in northern latitudes, the celestial north pole is the pole that I would project. If I go south of the equator, I would do the celestial south pole. Because the celestial other pole is below the ground, it's kind of irrelevant for the discussion of what I see in my sky. The angle that the pole makes above my north compass point is my latitude. And again, contrarywise, if I was in Chile or Australia, the angle the southern pole would make above my southern compass point would be my southern latitude. So this angle is the latitude. Now we happen to live at a fortunate time when the north, when the 
North Celestial Pole points very close to the star Polaris, within one degree. So by measuring the altitude of Polaris above my northern horizon, I can estimate my latitude without ever having to whip out a GPS unit or look at a map. It's a piece of celestial navigation. In fact, navigating by the stars, latitude is really easy to measure from the stars. People have been doing it from ancient times. The celestial equator is the plane perpendicular to that pole and appears in the sky like this. The celestial equator crosses between my east cardinal point and my west compass point as follows, but it's tilted by an angle above the horizon. Now, remembering that this is a 90 degree angle from the north compass point up to the zenith, if this is my latitude, this angle here is 90 degrees minus my latitude. And since these are perpendicular lines, this angle here is my latitude. So the celestial equator is my latitude and angle from straight up and down, or it's 90 degrees minus my latitude up from my southern horizon point. And that gives me now my frame of reference for looking at motions in the sky. What are those motions? Well, the Earth rotates in such a way that objects rise in the east, facing north, objects will appear to rise in the east, come to a high point towards the south, and set down in the west. This apparent daily motion simply reflects the fact that the Earth is rotating. And it's rotating towards the east. So I'm showing you the United States, a nice familiar frame of reference here. The sense of the Earth's rotation is sort of that the eastern part of the United States leads and the western part of the United States trails. And so if I view this from the point of view, you all get to be the stars. A, an observer, where's my observer? An observer standing at a location on the Earth doesn't see you at all, because daytime's towards the screen here. But as the Earth rotates towards the east, he sees first those stars over at that part of the room rise above his eastern horizon. And then as they rotate around, those stars are now overhead as seen by Marvin here on the globe. And then finally, as the rotation continues, those stars finally set below Marvin's western horizon. And that gives you this apparent motion through the sky of objects rising in the east and setting in the west. The rotation is about the axis that runs through the north-south poles. It takes roughly 24 hours for the Earth to turn around once. And so we end up with this sense of eastward rotation every 24 hours. So stars appear to rise in the east and set in the west on a roughly 24-hour period. Not exactly 24, but just a little bit different. And the reasons for that will become clear in the next couple of days. Now, these are apparent paths. These are only motions because we're moving. So we're seeing the reflex motion. Because the motion is around the pole of the Earth, Remember, the celestial equator and the Earth's equator are coincident. They're on the same plane, and that plane is perpendicular to the poles. So that means the apparent paths will always be parallel to the equator, because all of your lines of parallel of latitude and parallels lines of declination are all parallel to the celestial equator. So the result of these things is the orientation of these paths in your sky depends upon your latitude, how your notion of up or down corresponds to the angle with respect to the poles of the Earth. So for example, if you're standing at the equator, and now I'm going to make the notion of up-down this way, objects will appear to, let's get the right direction here, 
rise in the east and set in the west. Objects will appear to rise straight up out of the eastern horizon and straight down in the west. If I'm at a pole this way, my notion of up-down is this way, objects neither rise or set above my horizon. They all move in paths which are parallel to my horizon. And if I'm at a middle latitude, then I rise at a path tilted by 90 degrees minus my latitude. So which way your paths are tilted depends upon your latitude. Your sky and the apparent motions in that sky look different to you, whether you're standing at the pole, the equator, or one of the middle latitudes in between. So for example, in Columbus, we're almost exactly 40 degrees north. So if you went out to East Avenue, or I'm sorry, East Avenue, 15th Avenue, faced east, which we know is roughly along the 40th parallel of latitude, and you watch stars rise in the east through the streetlights, what you would see is they would be on tilted paths. I would see them in the east, pointing that way. I would see them rise in the east on a path which is tilted by 50 degrees relative to my horizon and then set by a path. And if I traced out that path as it's set in the west, the angle of that path with the ground would be 50 degrees. To show this photographically, this is a photograph taken from Australia at 30 degrees latitude. The town there is Coonabarabran, which is down below the Anglo-Australian Telescope Observatory site. The angle the paths make is because Coonabarabran is roughly at 30 degrees south latitude. The angle of the path here between the horizon and the star trail path is 90 degrees minus 30 degrees, or as I've drawn the angle here, 60 degrees from the horizon. For Columbus, we're at 40 degrees, so it's 90 minus 40, or 50 degrees. If I was exactly at, at 60 degrees north latitude, the angle would be 30 degrees, 60 mi 90 minus 60. The star trails here are made, these beautiful photographs by David Malan, are made by taking a long exposure photograph of the sky and letting the stars move as the shutter is open. As you move to different locations, as I displayed sort of with my little dancing globe demonstration, you see different motions in the sky. Now to emphasize this, if you're standing at the equator, the north celestial pole will be an angle of zero degrees above your north horizon. And the reason for that is because the equator is zero degrees of latitude. In fact, I haven't drawn it, but the southern celestial pole would be here, and the celestial equator would pass overhead directly through your zenith. At 40 degrees north latitude from Columbus, the north celestial pole is 40 degrees above my northern horizon, and the celestial equator is tilted by 50 degrees, 90 minus 40, off of the southern horizon line. So you would see all the paths of stars on different declinations, all of them cross the horizon at 45 degrees. And then finally, if you were standing at the north pole or flip upside down the south pole, the paths would actually be circles around the sky. They would never cross the horizon at all, except the celestial equator is exactly along your horizon. If you were, in fact, at the North or South Pole, you would see stars if you were up there at night, like at the South Pole. The stars just go round and around. Well, why say that? Let's see it. I'm going to use a computer to compress time here and show you a series of, of simulations of these pictures of what the sky looks like viewed from different latitudes. This is a picture of the night sky, and I've got the moon there to make it obvious, as seen from Quito, Ecuador. Notice the stars rise straight out of the eastern horizon point and appear to go straight up overhead. And if I turned around, they'd set straight down in the west. 
So at the equator, objects are kind of silly. They kind of rise straight up off your horizon and set straight down on the other side in all directions. So we'll just play that again just so you can see it. So notice the stars here to the southeast and northeast, and that east perfect just going straight up. It really does look like that. You can tell pretty much where you are on the Earth just by watching the stars over the course of a clear night. If you can measure the angle of that path, you've measured your latitude. If I go to a middle latitude, and this is now a view from Columbus, again, the same night, exactly the same moon phase, and now the paths are 50 degrees off the horizon. They rise in the east, but they follow these diagonal paths up across the sky. And yes, I know my wireless is not connected. Finally, if you go to the North Pole, you get what I consider to be one of the freakiest views from the surface of the Earth. I've never had the opportunity to go to the South Pole. I've wanted to really badly. But if you were to do so, of course, it helps if you push the button. There we go. Oops. the moon would just sort of go around and around the sky over the course of a 24-hour long night. And this is, in fact, exactly what my friends who spent time out at the Southern Polar Station during the wintertime have said it looks like. And they said, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty freaky. Now, the circumpolar stars is what happens if a star gets closer than your latitude to the celestial North Pole. So kind of wrap your head around that one for a second. If I'm at 40 degrees north latitude, like I am in Columbus, my celestial north pole is about 40 degrees off the horizon. Suppose that the declination of the star is such that it's closer than 40 degrees to my pole. If it's exactly 40 degrees, it would just touch the, southern the northern horizon there and then circle around this way as it rose and set. But if I'm closer, my circle closes, and I never go below my local horizon. In that case, I've defined a group of stars we call the circumpolar stars. They're up in the sky 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and Draco are examples of circumpolar constellations seen from the latitude of Columbus, Ohio. If you walk out in the sky at night, any time of year when it's clear, you will always see Draco, the Big Dipper, and the Little Dipper because their stars have a declination which is closer to the pole than 40 degrees, which is our northern latitude. If I go far to the south, I eventually reach the point where these stars now begin to set in the northern horizon, and they only are up in the sky at night at certain times of the year. You can actually go sufficiently far south that you can just barely see the Big Dipper rise over the northern horizon. One of those locations turns out to be the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory at about 30 degrees south latitude in the Chilean Andes. And March, a couple of years ago, when I was down there, I actually saw the Big Dipper just barely skirting the top of the northern horizon during March. The rest of the year, it's invisible below the northern horizon. The opposite pole is in the southern hemisphere. You can also talk about those stars that are closer to the south celestial pole than the 40 degrees of latitude of Columbus. Those stars will never come above my southern horizon, and so I will never see them. So certain constellations like Octanus and Centaurus never get above the southern horizon viewed from Columbus. So I cannot see Alpha Centauri, the brightest star in the, in the nearest star in the sky, is invisible from Columbus because its declination is closer to the southern pole than 40 degrees, it never gets above the southern horizon. 
The star Spica is only visible from southern latitudes. You can't see it from Columbus. I'm not Spica. Canopus, excuse me. It's not visible from Columbus. But if I traveled to the south end of Baja, California, or even to the south end of Florida, I could just see Canopus coming up over the horizon in the south. Because as I walk along the curve of the Earth, I change which constellations become circumpolar. There's one special location on the Earth where you can see all the stars year-round. Where is that? Anyone can guess? The equator. Because on the equator, all stars are closer than zero, are away, zero degrees away from your, your, are certainly further than zero degrees away from the poles, and so they all rise and set, but there are no circumpolar stars on the equator. The other two extreme points are the poles. The poles, all of the stars in the sky above your horizon are circumpolar, and all the stars below your, below your horizon are forever invisible. And then flip the poles, and you see the other half. So if you put an observatory at the South Pole, you could only ever see half the sky. But if you could put an observatory at the equator, you could in principle see the entire sky over the course of the entire year. There are practical issues, meaning the weather really sucks down at the equator because it rains all the time, for why we don't have observatories there. But there are some key sites close to equatorial in the tropical zone, like the South Island of Big Island of Hawaii at 20 degrees north latitude, gets a huge fraction of the sky. It's a very powerful set of observatories there. So, viewed from any latitude, this is what your sky looks like. Now, I've drawn the rest of the sphere to the part that's not visible to you. If an object is on the, exactly on the celestial equator, as viewed from this middle northern latitude, notice that it crosses the eastern point, rises high in the sky, and sets in the west over here, is exactly half the circle of the celestial equator. The celestial equator is cut in exact half by your plane of our horizon. So an object that's got zero degrees declination that's on the celestial equator will rise in the east. Six hours later, it will be at its highest southern point. So it will rise in the east. Six hours later, it will be at its highest southern point, which from Columbus is 50 degrees off the northern, southern horizon. And then six hours later, it will set exactly in the west. And so it will be exactly 12 hours above my horizon. If I'm further north of the celestial equator, as viewed from northern latitudes, notice that a smaller fraction of this circle, drawn in blue for the apparent path, parallel to the path of the celestial equator, a small fraction of that is below the horizon, but most of it is above. In fact, the way I've drawn this particular line, these stars would take nine hours to reach the highest point and nine hours to set, and would be above ground for 18 hours. So these stars would be up for a long time. Clearly, there's going to be a special point where they'll get higher still. If I'm the same position but south of the celestial equator, now only a quarter of the circle is above the ground here on this line I've chosen, and three quarters is below. So objects rising here would rise in the southeast. In three hours, they'd be at their maximum altitude above the ground. And in three hours, they'd set. They'd only be above the ground for six hours. But on the purple line here, these stars are closer in declination than the celestial north pole. They just go round and around and around 24 hours a day. And their opposite numbers in the south here go round and around. They always stay below the horizon. And that defines the circumpolar and kind of the anti-circumpolar groups are where those lines would exactly touch my southern horizon. OK, let's do a little movie to see that. This is now a compressing of time.
in which I'm now going to be staring at the north, close to the North Star Polaris, the celestial North Pole is near there, and watch from Columbus over the course of many hours. So the celestial North Pole is about here. Polaris is just about a degree away. And you can see all the stars appear to go round and around and around. We're facing north, of course, in this direction. So they rise out of the northeast. Let's play that again. Stars down here rise out of the northeast above the horizon and go around here, whereas stars here, you notice, will never get closer to the horizon than there. And so they will always be above the, the northern horizon and defines the northern constellations, the northern circumpolar stars. Kill that off. Come on. And in fact, if you took a long time exposure photograph, and this is a favor to photographers who get into this, this is what the night sky looks like. You can see the nearly closed circles. This is a, a, a more than 12 hour exposure here. And so you see, for, actually, it's a, is it 12 hours? No, it's actually a six hour exposure. I can tell because I can look at the size of the arc there of Polaris. Polaris is not exactly on the North Pole. There is a little faint star pretty close, but it's invisible to the naked eye. It only shows up on the photograph. Polaris is the obvious one. And you can tell it's about six hours because it's a quarter of a circle, or one quarter of 24 hours. And all the other stars, these are all circumpolar, but you can see these are just dropping below the horizon here. Those are the daily motions. It's simply a reflection of the fact that the Earth rotates around its axis once every 24 hours. There's another set of motions which we can look at, which are due to the fact that the Earth is orbiting around the Sun. And in fact, we often talk about this annual motion, we apply it primarily to the Sun. The Sun's sitting to a first approximation fixed at the center of the solar system, and we're orbiting around, which means where I see the Sun against the background of the sky depends upon where I am at any time in the orbit. And the orbit takes at least one year. So as I move around the Sun, Turns out the direction of motion in the solar system, my arbitrary notion of up on the Earth is north. I know, it's kind of northernocentric, so my, my listeners to the podcast in Australia are just going to have to deal. The way you can figure out what the direction of rotation of something where north is up is very simple. It's called the right-hand rule. So take your right hand, put your thumb up, like in a notion of approval, and then take your fingers and curl them in this direction. I'd like you all to do that. That's the sense of rotation in a right-hand rule. And the Earth, in fact, I cheated by looking at the Earth, but in fact, I could use north up, fold the fingers. It's the right sense of rotation, the east leading the west. The Earth's orbit also follows a right-hand rule. Up is now going to have a particular d direction. We're going to use the name in a second. It's called the ecliptic pole. And it orbits in that same right-hand sense. There's an important clue in there to the origin of the solar system that the planets all tend to rotate in the same general direction that they orbit. They're remembering something about the conditions under which they formed. Because the Earth's rotation towards the east causes stars to rise in the east, because the Earth is orbiting in the east, the reflex motion of the sun is going to cause the sun to appear to drift slowly eastward with respect to the stars reflecting the Earth's eastward orbit around the sun. This drift is kind of small. Its drift is about less than a degree per day. That's easy to compute. There are 365 days per year, but only 360 degrees in a circle. So to go a full 360 degrees in 365 days, you move a little bit less than a degree every day. Since the sun is a half a degree across in the sky, 
the sun moves twice its own diameter in round numbers every day. So it's a very slow motion. It's not as dead obvious as watch the sun rise now very close to the equinox. You pretty are pretty much certain six hours later around noon it's going to be straight overhead and another six hours it's going to be setting in the west. That's a very quick motion. But during the course of that 12 hours, the sun will have moved through half of its daily motion, or about half a degree. The sun will have actually moved a little bit to the east. Remember, it's rising in the east and setting in the west. But simultaneously, it's slowly slipping a little bit backwards in motion by about its own diameter. Because the same time the Earth is rotating, the Earth is also orbiting through one half of a degree through its full year track around the Earth. So the apparent motion of the sun is a reflection of the Earth's orbital motion around the sun. You can also adopt the geocentric view and say the Earth is stationary and the sun is rising and setting and also having a second slower motion against the stars. And you can actually explain the observed motion pretty well that way. So the apparent annual motion of the sun is simply a reflection of the Earth's orbit around the sun once a year because it's once a year, it makes it a slow eastward drift of about less than a degree of day eastward because we orbit in a general right-hand rule sense around the sun. Now, the path of the sun, however, is different. When we look to the paths of the stars, the moon, <coughs> and even the sun over the course of rising in the east and setting in the west over the course of a day, all those motions were exactly parallel to the celestial equator. But if I watch the motion of the sun throughout the year, <coughs> it's not parallel to the celestial equator. That slow eastward drift has a north-south component to it as well. It moves slowly to the north for half of the year, and then slowly to the south for the half of the year on top of its eastward motion. And the reason for that is that the path of the sun is a great circle, but that great circle is tilted with respect to the celestial equator, is tilted by an angle of 23 and a half degrees in round numbers. We call this oblique angle, has a special name, it's called the obliquity of the ecliptic. It's one of those little specialized vocabulary words here. Now it turns out that the angle of the ecliptic is not perfectly fixed in space, it changes a little bit. Around now, which is the last time I must have, 2005, January 10th. I don't know why that's now. It should be 2006, September something. It's about 23 degrees, 26 minutes, 26.62 arc seconds. But back in 1900, it was a little bit larger. It was 23 degrees, 27 minutes. There's a very slight wobble in the Earth's axis tilt, which is what causes this. And that tilt wobble has been noted even from classical times. Hipparchus of Rhodes noticed that the tilt of the Earth's ecliptic the tilt of the path of the sun was changing slowly from the Babylonian records that he had access to. And we can see that today. It's actually a very, very complicated motion due to the fact that the tides of the moon and the slopping around of fluids in the interior of the earth causes the earth to be kind of a wobbly top. So, let's draw a picture. This is the celestial sphere, the earth at the center, the celestial equator, celestial north and south poles. And the earth's equator down here, of course, and the earth's north and south poles corresponding. The ecliptic is a tilted path, tilted by exactly 23 and a half degrees, this obliquity angle. The sun appears to move eastward, so there's our reference of the eastern coast of the United States. The earth is rotating this way, and the sun is appearing to move eastward on the sky. It appears to rise up towards a maximum northern position, then decline to the south, cross the celestial equator, 
go to a maximum southern position, and then begin climbing north. So half of the year, the sun is moving south and east. The other half of the year, the sun is moving north and east. And it's a little bit per day in the north-south direction. Most of the motion along this line is that less than a degree per day. This gives us this line in the sky, this tilted line called the ecliptic. Now, as the sun moves through the course of the year, it's going to be seen against different stars. Now, at first sight, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, because when you walk out the daytime, the one thing you don't see are the stars, because the sun is so bright. But you can figure out which stars the sun must be against by looking at the stars that are up at midnight now, when the sun is exactly on the opposite side of the sky. And then say six months ago, what stars were the, the sun will be in against those stars six months from now? So you can guess which stars it's against by watching what stars are at midnight over the course of a year, because midnight's the other side of noon. Now, these constellations, because they make a signpost, they basically lay out the track of the sun across the nighttime sky, are the oldest constellations that we know of. And we refer to these as the constellations of the zodiac, because many of them, but not all of them, are animals. Zoos is a Greek word for animal. More of these are ancient. They go back all the way to Babylonian days. And you know what all of these are. Crack open a newspaper and look at an astrology column. The 12 constellations of the so-called horoscope are, in fact, the 12 classical zodiacal constellations. They're the constellations that the sun is in over the course of the 12 months of the year. Do you ever wonder why it was 12 months of the year? It's actually a combination of things. But there's 12 zodiacal constellations, one for each month. They're using the heavens as a calendar. <laughs> All right. In fact, it's exactly what's going on. All these twelves and coincidences are not accidents. You can use the sun as a, the sun as a calendar in the sky in preliterate days. The way you do this is you look at which zodiacal constellation is on your celestial meridian, your imaginary line of north-south through your zenith, at midnight. You say, oh, look, Virgo's on the, on the meridian at midnight. It must be, and read off the time of the year. Or, oh, look, Scorpius is up there at this time. It must be midsummer or spring or whatever the appropriate time is. Since you know where the constellation is at midnight, you sort of imaginarily flip around and say, oh, yeah, the sun's against that other constellation in the sky, and you know exactly what time it is by where the sun is with respect to the background stars. It takes a little bit of imagination in a couple of years to get all the constellations nailed down, but once you do that, you've got the whole system. So it just takes you a little time is all. Let's draw a picture because words just don't help this much. Here are the constellations of the zodiac, the familiar Virgo, Libra, Scorpius, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, and Leo. I'll never expect you to memorize these. I, I can cheat in the order, too, by reading them off here. So, but what's important is how this works here. In March of this year, in 2006, the sun was in Pisces. That means as viewed from the Earth, standing here on the Earth at noon, the sun would have been against the constellation of Pisces here. And I would know that because at midnight, if I went out, there was the constellation of Virgo. If I waited three months later to June, the Earth has moved, again, there's sort of this general right-hand rule. So in these pictures, up is your celestial north, if you will, or ecliptic north. And the Earth rotates around this way in a right-hand rule. So in June, it will have moved a quarter of the way around its orbit. The sun will now be kind of in the constellation of Gemini, starting to slide over into Cancer. 
But I know that because if I wait until midnight and look up in the sky, oh look, there's Sagittarius, the zodiacal constellation that's up overhead at midnight in June. I advance another three months. Now, six months from March, I'm in September, Pisces is now overhead at midnight and the sun is down in Virgo. Six months earlier, they were in the opposite locations. And again, advance another three months. Now, the sun is in Sagittarius and Cancer will be overhead at midnight. So if you were to walk out in the sky tonight, if it's clear, because we're very close to the equinox, September of 2006, Pisces would be the zodiacal constellation at midnight. By the end of the quarter towards December, the zodiacal constellation at midnight will be on its way between Gemini and Cancer. So those define the constellations of the zodiac. And you can see this reflex around the sky as the Earth moves around the sun. It simply goes through the sequence of constellations through the course of the year, year after year, and we can track out the motion of the sun and thereby just simply sketch the ecliptic across the sky. Now there's some special points along the line of the ecliptic. There's four special points. Two of those are known as the solstice. The solstice occurs when the sun is at its maximum northern or maximum southern position along the ecliptic. It comes from the Latin solstice, which means the sun stands. The sun has been slowly drifting towards the north, and then all of a sudden the northern motion stops for just one day and then continues along to the south. Now, actually, it's a smooth, continuous motion, but it appears to slow to a stop on that one day. The sun has stood in its north-south drift, that's the northern solstice, or we now call it the southern solstice, the, the June solstice or summer solstice. Similarly, in the south, it appears to keep going south until it reaches its maximum southern position, and then it stands again, and we have the southern or winter solstice. In fact, the summer solstice is maximum northern declination, and the winter solstice is maximum southern declination. And these names, summer and winter, are suggestive of the phenomena associated with the change of the angle of the sun in the sky due to its motion on this tilted path. So the solstices define the maximum northern and maximum southern declinations of the sun. Here's this picture showing that celestial sphere, the ecliptic, and now we have the summer solstice, the maximum northern point, and the winter solstice, the maximum southern point. I'm going to take a shamelessly northern ocentric view here because it turns out that while it's winter in the north, it's summer in the south. And so my friends in Australia and Chile actually use the same language. They just kind of deal with the ambiguity. The equinoxes. We recently went through an equinox last, last Friday. We went through the autumnal equinox. Equinoxes occur when the sun is exactly on the celestial equator, crossing it, moving either north or south. On that day, because the sun is on the celestial equator, or very close to it, it rises exactly in the east, six hours to noon, and then six hours down to the west to set. That gives you 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. In Latin, equal day and equal night. Equal night is equinoctis, hence the name equinox. This happens twice a year. Once when the sun crosses the celestial equator heading north in March, and the second time when the celestial equator crosses, when the sun crosses the celestial equator heading south in September. The vernal equinox is that northern crossing time, and the autumnal equinox, which happened last week, is the sun getting further and southernly in the sky 
crossing the celestial equator, the sun is now, we're now three, four days away from the equinox. The sun is now well below the celestial equator, south of the celestial equator, on its way to its maximum southern point around the 20th of December at the winter solstice. And then on the 20th of December, it will rise again towards the north and cross the celestial equator into the north sky in March at the vernal equinox. So if I draw my picture again from before, the vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox are the exact crossing points here on the sky. If I watch a movie of where the sun is throughout the year and now I use a computer to make the sky go away so I can see the stars, and then just for grins I'm going to draw the lines of the constellations on the sky, I've marked out crosses of winter solstice, vernal equinox and the celestial equator, maximum to the southern solstice and summer solstice, descending, crossing the celestial equator at the autumnal equinox and back into Virgo. So we'll watch again. Maximum south, rises to the north, crosses the vernal equinox in March through Pisces, Aries, Taurus, in between to the summer solstice. Now it descends to the south and crosses the autumnal equinox. And not surprisingly, this is pretty close to where it will be here on the 4th of October, later the, towards the end of this, towards next week. Oops. So, these are the motions across the sky through the course of the year. Obviously, when the sun is at different places on the sky, the vernal equinox occurs when it's on the celestial equator. I get equal day and equal night. In the summer solstice, the sun is north of the celestial equator from northern latitudes and spends most of the day above the horizon. Days are long. And when it's close to the winter solstice, I'm at maximum south. Only a fraction of the circle of its apparent path is now above my horizon, and the days are short. So this gives us a very suggestive phenomenon. The length of the day depends upon the time of the year. The vernal equinoxes, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and I have equal day and night. Day is 12 hours long. On the summer solstice, the sun rises in the northeast and sets in the northwest. It's longer than, day is longer than night. And in the wintertime, as the sun moves further and further south, it rises in the southeast, doesn't come as high in the sky, and sets further in the southwest, and day is shorter than the night. These have some interesting phenomena that we'll see tomorrow. This is the origin of the seasons.